Good morning, Church. We continue our reading. Um, we in our series Mark's Gospel. I begin reading at chapter 12. If you will please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. And I begin reading at verse 35 to 37. Let's listen carefully. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? A large crowd listened to him with delight. Here is a reading of God's word. Uh, good morning, church family. Lovely to see you all. And uh, yes, indeed, it is great to have Isaac and Marco with us from South Sudan, but also Herbert, who has joined us from Kenya. Um, this morning I received a WhatsApp message from a former alumni here, Elijah Jomo, and next Sunday morning he's being ordained as a deacon in St. Peter's Church in Marsabit. For those of you who don't know, uh, Elijah and his wife are doing a, a pan-church ministry for young adults, I think covering about 50 churches in that area. Uh, so I'll pray for him in a moment. And then just also to say that uh, next Sunday morning we'll have our uh, rescheduled vision day immediately after the service. Uh, so do please join us for that. It's when we're going to set out our plans for the ministry here at St Barnabas through 2021. So do please make sure that you're here for that. Well, let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our brother Elijah and his wife Anne. Uh, we thank you for the privilege of fellowship with them um, across the miles. We thank you for the ministry that you've called him to, and we do lift both of them up to you as they prepare for ordination next Sunday morning. We pray your blessing upon their ministry, and especially the upcoming uh, conference in April, uh, going right back to basics, looking at the purpose of church. Please anoint him with your Holy Spirit. Make that a really profitable time, we pray. And now as we look at your word, we pray that your word to us this morning would be our rule and guide, and your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. And these things we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, not the longest reading this morning, but an important one. And uh, I think the, the relevance of our passage this morning is brought into sharp focus for us by two current events. Uh, the first is the very sad news, which Alice hinted at in her prayers, of the moral failure uh, of a well-known Christian leader. And uh, although the man in question died uh, about a year ago, the, the full disclosure 
of his misconduct has only recently come to light. And understandably, many people who sat under his ministry are extremely angry and confused and hurt. Uh, The man and his message were clearly not the same. Now, of course, it is very sad and it is deeply discouraging when things like that happen. But it is important to say that although it is sad, it is not new. Uh, From earliest days, the church has had to contend with problems just like this, indeed in many cases much worse. The New Testament gives us several very disturbing examples, and yet in spite of these very real problems, the Gospel has continued to spread and the church has continued to grow. But, as I've been thinking about this during the week and reflecting on our passage this morning, I've been reminded how important it is for Christians never to be satisfied with a second-hand faith. Uh, Our faith is never in the man in the pulpit. Uh, We might like him, but we do hope he's prepared properly. We do hope he's preached God's word to himself before he preaches to us. But God expects you and I to test everything that we read and hear by the word of God and to do that work for ourselves. And the passage before us this morning is challenging us to test uh, whether the Christ we say we believe in is the Christ of the New Testament or whether he's just a collection of ideas we've picked up second-hand. Then I think the second event that shapes the relevance of, of our passage this morning is the season of Lent. This is the first Sunday in Lent. Lent, of course, is the 40-day period when we prepare ourselves to celebrate the two most important days in the Christian calendar, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So on Good Friday, uh, we remember Christ's death on the cross and we celebrate the fact that without his death for our sin, there would be no salvation. There would be no salvation. And on Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus uh, because without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we would have no hope. And during Lent, we want to be thinking, don't we, about the human condition and facing the fact that all of us, by nature, are separated from God because of our sin. Why? Well, we saw last week, none of us has loved God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. None of us has actually loved our neighbour as ourselves. If you think you have done either of those things perfectly, come and see me afterwards. So not only are we separated from God because of our sin, but we're also separated from one another because of our sin. And unless something is done to deal with that situation, the Bible says that you and I would be separated from God and from everything good forever. So during Lent, we want to fix our minds on the solution provided by God through the cross of Christ. We want to be honest with God and we want to be honest with ourselves. 
And we want to make sure that the Christ that we believe in is the perfect, sufficient Saviour that the Bible says that he is. So that when we get to Easter, we'll be dancing. We'll, we'll come here, we'll be dancing, we'll be so thankful. And by the way, that does mean that uh, you will want to be here with your brothers and sisters over Easter and not halfway up the garden route. Um, Christians, I think, get those two things the wrong way round, so make sure you're here. And the three verses before us this morning are going to help us with all of this. Uh, The Lord Jesus is in the temple, and uh, in recent weeks we've seen that he's been answering all kinds of hostile questions which have been coming at him from all angles. But here, Jesus himself asks a question. It's a very thoughtful question. Perhaps on the surface it seems to be rather a strange question, even perhaps a little bit obscure. Something to interest the Bible scholars, the experts, but is there much here for the ordinary Christian? Well, we'll get to that. But before we get to try and understand what Jesus is asking here, I want you to notice that Jesus asks questions. Now, you may say, well, hang on a moment, Simon, that's obvious. I think we need to say it again and again. Jesus asks questions. Some people seem to think that Jesus was always in the dock, constantly under cross-examination, having to defend Christianity from his enemies. But friends, that's not quite right. That's not the total picture. Jesus saw himself as the light of the world, who came into the world to ask questions. And so sometimes, as we've seen recently, he'd ask a question for information, such as, whose head is on the coin? Sometimes he'd ask a question to establish authority. What does the scripture say? And sometimes he'd ask a question in order to get people to think, maybe for the first time in their entire lives. Now, friends, I think that means that you and I should be asking questions, very respectfully, of people who are not believers. So sometimes we might need to say say to somebody, has anybody ever shown you the data or the grounds or the evidence for Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection? We might want to ask somebody whether they've ever done any homework on the Christian faith or whether they've simply avoided the subject altogether. And perhaps a provocative question is necessary, such as, are you actually open to hearing the Christian message or are you closed? If I gave you a book or I gave you a recording of a talk, would you read it, would you listen to it? Well, I'm pretty feeble at all of that, and I guess none of us are experts. But uh, Christ, of course, is masterful. And here we see him doing a great job in very hostile company. So I've got these three verses under just two headings this morning. First of all, a simple question, and then second, a searching question. Simple question, a searching question. First, a simple question. This is what Jesus asks. 
Why do the teachers of the Jewish law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, who is Jesus talking to here? Uh, Mark doesn't actually tell us. But he is in the temple. Uh, We know that the crowds are gathered around him because at the end of the passage it says, doesn't it, that the large crowd listened to him with delight. And we assume that the religious leaders are there as well because until now they've been asking all the questions. And uh, Matthew, in his account of this event, tells us that Jesus asked this question of the Pharisees. So we can picture Jesus in the temple. He's got religious leaders, he's got ordinary people, and he says in a loud voice, why do the teachers of the Jewish law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now it's a simple question. And it's not hard to imagine uh, the children in Kingdom Kids putting up their hand and saying, well, it's perfectly obvious, it's because the Bible says so. Uh, Because the Bible says so, they thought the Messiah would come from David. Because the Old Testament says it in a a number of places. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, a famous Christian uh, Christmas text, is talking about the Messiah And it says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and then a line or two further on it says, and he will reign on David's throne. So no wonder the people of Israel were looking forward to another David. Or listen to these words from the prophets who came a long time after David. Jeremiah chapter 23 says, I will raise up from David a king. Or Jeremiah 33, I'll make a righteous branch from David's line. Or Ezekiel chapter 37, David will be king and shepherd. Now you read that and you need to know that David had died several hundred years before Ezekiel wrote that. But David says, another, sorry, Ezekiel says, another David will be king and shepherd. So, when you know that, it doesn't seem like this is a very difficult question. Why do the teachers of the Jewish law say the Messiah is the son of David? The answer is, that's what the Bible says. But friends, you also need to know that in Jesus' day, the teachers of the law interpreted the phrase, the son of David, in purely political terms. They were expecting somebody who would be a king just like David, sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, uh, winning battles for Israel. So what they did was they, they shrank Jesus. They domesticated Jesus into a purely political figure, someone who would serve their own interests. And that explains why Jesus, in verse 36, goes on to ask another question, which goes like this. Tell me why David called the Messiah his Lord. Why would David, who's expecting a descendant at some point in the future, why would he call that descendant 
his Lord. And that's what Jesus is asking here. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> See, David might have said, you know, um, one day, many, many, many years from now, there's going to be a very special boy in my family line. My boy will come. David doesn't say that. Instead, he says, my Lord will rule. And he says it in a very worshipful way. So you see, this is the question that Jesus is asking. And can I suggest it's the kind of question that in the right context would engage the mind of a non-Christian. And it's certainly the sort of question that ought to engage your mind this morning. So let me say it a little differently to help us get it. Jesus is asking, how could King David see the Messiah as both above him in heaven and also below him in history? Or we could put it like this. How could King David see the Messiah as before him, as his Lord, and therefore his maker, and also after him, as his descendant? Or again, how could King David call the Messiah his Lord, and therefore his superior, and also his son? And therefore, in Jewish culture, his inferior. Because in Jewish culture, the ancestors were considered much more important than the people who followed, just like they are in cultures in Africa today. Now, Jesus is not playing a trick here. He's not playing a game. Remember that when Jesus arrived in the temple, the religious leaders confronted him. They demanded to know where he got his authority from, and here, Jesus is turning round at the end of all of these conversations. And through these questions, he's saying to his critics and everybody who's listening, I've got authority beyond your wildest dreams. That's the thrust of it. How does he do it? Well, he turns their attention to Psalm 110. The person who wrote Psalm 110 was King David. And we know that because the psalm has got David's name in the heading and that's part of the inspired text. And Jesus says here that Psalm 110 was written by David, notice this in your Bible, written by David with the help of the Holy Spirit. And you might be interested to know that Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. Now that's telling us, isn't it, that this is, Psalm 110 is a really, really important part of the Bible. Jesus could have taken a quote from any number of different places in the Old Testament to challenge his opposition. But you see, the point of this quote is that when David wrote this psalm, which was roughly a thousand years before Jesus was even born, David already knew by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Messiah was the Lord 
and that the Messiah would take his seat, not on the throne of Jerusalem, but on the throne of heaven at God's right hand. So all those years ago, David already knew that the Messiah was infinitely greater than himself and was not to be domesticated or shrunk. This person who's yet to be born is already greater than he is. He's the Lord. Someone who one day would be seated on the throne in heaven. That's what David's thinking. So David has been enabled by God, by the Holy Spirit, to look up to this great Messiah and also to look down through history to the Messiah who would come from his own family line. By contrast, uh, the critics surrounding Jesus can only look down on him. But David's in a completely different category. All those years before, David understood what the contemporaries of Jesus completely missed. So that's the first thing. It's a simple question. But secondly, it's also a searching question. And I wonder if you can see what the real issue is here. Is the Messiah the son of David? Yes, he is. But is that enough? No, it's not. The Messiah is infinitely more than just the descendant of David. He's far more than just a political figure. He's much more than a merely human king who will come and rule for a few years on the throne in Jerusalem. And you see, what Jesus is doing is he's using this to literally explode the brains of the people around him. It's rather like a key unlocking something absolutely massive. When I uh, look back to the time when I became a Christian, which is many years ago now, um, it felt like I was going through a door, leaving behind a tiny world and entering a massive world, a huge world. It seemed like God was opening my eyes to see something enormous. It had been there all the time, but I couldn't see it until God opened my eyes. Now that is what Jesus is doing in these three verses. He's unlocking this massive reality. And I wonder whether we shouldn't pause and remember this question from time to time. So perhaps, for example, we're struggling to know what to say to a friend who's hesitant, very resistant to the Christian message. Perhaps we could say to them, have you heard of David and Goliath? Yes, you have. Well, that same David was the greatest king of Israel in the Old Testament. Here's a question for you. Did David think of the Messiah as being before him or after him? Above him or below him? Lord or descendant? And for those of you who are believers this morning, you might just want to take a moment or two, perhaps later today, 
and say to yourself in a quiet moment, this question that Jesus is asking here, which seemed to me to be so terribly unimportant this morning, is actually unlocking something so big, something so important, that it actually puts my tiny world and all my plans and all my problems into perspective. And I think it's a wonderful thing because a human being, a human being, King David, grasps the true status of the Messiah and his future position at the right hand of God. You see, if a person mentally shrinks Jesus into somebody little, forgettable, or even dead, they're actually missing the most important truth in the entire universe. One of the greatest possible mistakes is to look into the world for an explanation of the way things are and for a solution to all our problems. I was interested in these words of the chief rabbi in the UK, a guy called Lord Sachs. He said this, Civilizations rise and fall. Where is meaning to be found? Abraham saw that the God who gives meaning to life lay outside the universe. The transcendental God who stands outside the universe and creates it shows that life has meaning beyond myth and science. What he's saying, what this rabbi is saying, is if you want to discover what this world is really all about, you've got to look outside it. You won't find the answer inside it. And the God that we believe in, the God of the Bible, is outside the world. He made the whole creation, which of course logically makes sense. The atheist Richard Dawkins has said that Christians believe this without evidence and then rejoice that there is no evidence. And therefore, says Dawkins, Christians are not to be listened to. By contrast, the Christian leader and speaker John Lennox says there is not a shred of evidence that Christians believe without evidence and therefore Richard Dawkins should not be listened to. And of course that's absolutely right. John Lennox then goes on to say, this is very interesting, atheism seems to have a stubborn refusal to consider evidence that doesn't lead to atheistic conclusions. Let me say that again. Atheism has a stubborn refusal to consider evidence that doesn't lead to atheistic conclusions. Isn't that interesting? Very well put. But the believer is prepared to consider the evidence against Christ. And the believer is prepared to consider the evidence for Christ. But so often the unbeliever is only willing to consider the evidence against. So, David, who is a figure from history and who wrote Psalm 110 in about 1000 BC, 
long before the Messiah entered our world, recognised that there was someone who was above him and also beneath him. Someone who was before him, someone who was after him. And Jesus teaches these intelligent, influential, very religious men that David saw quite clearly what they had totally failed to see. Now, when did the Messiah take his seat? Uh, When did the Messiah take the throne of heaven? Uh, Did it actually happen? Uh, Or is Psalm 110 just wishful thinking? We need to know the answer to this, because we actually said it, didn't we, in the Apostles' Creed this morning, so I hope we believe it. And in the New Testament, the answer is given on the day of Pentecost when the Apostle Peter stands up and addresses the crowd. So I'd like you to please keep a finger in Mark 12 and page ahead to Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. Can we all find, please, Acts chapter 2, verse 29 in our Bible? Just give you a moment to get there. Acts 2 verse 29, Peter says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he, that is David, was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, He spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, but he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. Now pause on that. Peter says, King David saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ a thousand years before Jesus was even born. Verse 32 God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said, well what did he say? He said, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So when Jesus died and rose and took his seat at God's right hand, that was when Psalm 110 was fulfilled. And I want to finish this morning by considering with you just for a couple of minutes why this is all so challenging and also at the same time so very comforting. So come back to Mark 12. And it's challenging because... You see, it is in the interests of our sin and it's in the interest of the world and it's in the interest of the devil 
to keep on shrinking Jesus. That's what I'm like. You know, there's a part of me that at certain times would very much like to put Jesus on a shelf so that I can get on with my own agenda. The world is like that. The devil wants everyone to be like that. But you see, once you shrink Jesus mentally to suit yourself, once you decide that Jesus is either silent or that he's your servant, or that he's dead and gone, well, then you can get on with your own plans and you can leave Christ totally out of your thinking. I mean, it's so obvious, isn't it? This is the way the world thinks, and it is also the way, friends, that evil takes hold. You know, just, just shrink Jesus so that he's no threat to your own personal preferences. And if you look away from the facts about Jesus and you kind of reinvent him, well, you can pretend that you're free to live as you please. But I have to say this to you. It's only actually when you remove the authority of Jesus that you discover another authority takes its place in your life. And if you live long enough, that you'll discover that the authority that takes over in your life is more burdensome, less liberating, more emptying, infinitely less satisfying than Jesus. In fact, it's utterly dehumanising. And you see, friends, when the church becomes weak on the Bible and doesn't really know what the Bible says and tries instead to become more like the world, the Jesus that is presented to us is so small and so insignificant he can be safely ignored. And I think one of the greatest dangers in the church is people who are big on themselves and little on Jesus. We're all capable of this. So you see, we need to keep coming back to the reality of the Bible's teaching about Christ. The tendency is always to reduce Jesus so that he becomes a bit like a Panado tablet that we take in order to deal with our pain. We think that's his job. But you see, the question that Jesus is asking in Mark 12 is revealing to us, if we've got eyes to see it, a greatness and a majesty that demands our worship and our devotion and our obedience. So that's the challenge of the passage. What about the comfort? The comforting thing is that in Mark 12, Jesus is pulling back the curtain on ultimate reality to reveal someone who controls all the things we're most afraid of. So you'll notice in verse 36 that Jesus has been on the throne of heaven for 2,000 years now and all his enemies are going to end up under his feet. As surely as Jesus is seated on the throne, all his enemies are going to be defeated and destroyed. Now that process has started and it means that the things that you worry about, 
uh, the things that threaten you, the things that grieve you, the things that oppress you, they're all going to be placed under the feet of Jesus. All evil, all disease, all poverty, the devil, all corruption, and of course the last enemy, death. All of that's going to become his footstool. Conquered, finished, gone. So no wonder, no wonder that the large crowd in verse 37 listened with delight. And I commend these verses to you this week and pray that they will be a delight for you too. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we just thank you and praise you for this small portion of your word which opens up to our mind the greatness and the majesty of the Lord Jesus. We thank you and praise you that he is seated on the throne of heaven. And we thank you for the promise that his enemies are being put under his feet. And we ask that you would help us this week to live in the joy of this, to live in the truth of this, to grasp the importance of this, and to hold on to the hope of this. And we ask in Jesus' name.